Religion and education worked together in Mound Bayou. In addition to the public school, there was the Mound Bayou Industrial Institute, an educational institution that provided agricultural vocational training to men and women. Another institution in Mound Bayou was the Baptist College, which in 1910 had approximately 200 students. Religious denominations also united together to establish a community's moral code. In the early years of settlement, alcohol and gambling were strictly prohibited. Fraternal organizations provided another anchor of the community. The region's most prestigious fraternal organization, the International Order of Twelve Knights and Daughters of Tabor, established a hospital in Mount Bayou in 1942. The hospital not only served Mount Bayou, but also the surrounding area. Indeed, it was one of only two hospitals in the entire Mississippi Delta, the northwest section of Mississippi, to provide care for black people. T.R. M. Howard, a man who emerged in the 1950s as a leader, not only of black doctors, but also emerging leaders in the Mississippi Delta, was the hospital's chief surgeon. This is my Black Book Journal. Welcome back to My Black Book Journal, powered by Act Justly Love Mercy. You all, we have an exciting season lined up for you. I really am excited this year. We cleared out our schedule. We have the year planned out. So we're going to have a fantastic journey this year. And I'm really excited to open up this new season or this new year with a brand new episode with me interviewing Dr. Quasi. Kenna. But before I jump into that, you all, I want to share a couple things with you. So I started my own Substack. So if you enjoy the podcast, I am trying to get into writing more. And if you enjoy the stories that we do, the people that we interview, the books that we review, I think you'll really enjoy my new Substack. You can follow that Substack at Danny B. Jr. at Substack.com uh, or, and I'll link that in the bio, or act justly love mercy on Substack or go to the website um, and you can find my new uh, at, at act justly love mercy.org. You can find my new Substack there. I'm really excited to be able to share more with you all. Um, if you enjoy what you hear, you listen on Apple Podcasts, then please subscribe, please rate, please review. It means a lot. It makes it easier for people to find the show and you don't want to miss this new season. So here we go. Before we jump into it, I want to kind of give an intro um, for our podcast today. So as you all know, throughout American history, there have been many attempts by black people uh, and formerly enslaved people to establish and incorporate their own towns, cities, and communities from places like Mound Bayou that I talked about in the opening to Greenwood in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Black people have desired self-determination and self-actualization in a land that hasn't always loved or embraced them. This dream of freedom, independence, and liberty in America, the land of opportunity, has always been mixed for some as a place of fear and hope. A people terrorized since they were brought to this land, chained and bound, carried far away from their homeland, somehow found a way to survive. But these people wanted to do more than just survive and struggle. They wanted to thrive. They wanted to own property, plant farms, raise cattle, build 
families, worship freely and live as citizens in a land that promised them opportunity. In search of all these things, visionary leaders sought to carve out spaces for black people and all people to find and enjoy the beauty in life. Yo, it is with that in mind that we enter into today's conversation with Dr. Kwesi Kenna. Dr. Kwesi Kenna helped to co-author the book that we'll be discussing today, City on a Hill, African-American Communities of Promise. Before we get started, I wanted to take a moment and honor the life and legacy of Dr. Carrie Lattimore. Carrie Lattimore also co-authored this book in this series, and he passed away unexpectedly last year, leaving behind a wife, children, and other members of his beloved community. So I wanted to take a moment and honor him. So you all, let's go ahead and jump into it. So, Dr. Kenner, it's a pleasure to have you on My Black Book Journal. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thank you for having me. Well, it is absolutely a pleasure to have you on. Um, So, on My Black Book Journal, I believe in allowing people to share their story when they come on. So, we would love to hear about your journey and um, what led you to this point. Well, my journey is a circuitous one. I was born in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, to what I call a pioneering family. Our family was part of the Great Migration. Uh, my father's side, in particular, came from Tennessee, migrated from Diesburg, and as is the tradition, my aunt, uh, who we call TT, uh, was one of the forerunners, and she found some property, and then others came up, and she would house them, and so forth. And and my father uh, and mother, when they moved there in the early '50s, also were pioneers in that they moved to what was then Glendale, uh, Wisconsin, before Milwaukee uh, expanded. And they were one of four or five black families in that community. So I grew up in a predominantly white neighborhood, predominantly white school system, and yet I'm going to black church. And so I'm doing the the, the W.E.B. Du Bois Tunis piece. You know, I'm living biculturally uh, all the way through. And I I, I rehearsed my biography to people and I note that when I'm teaching cultural context to my students that uh, my educational experience was much different from my wife's educational experience who grew up in the segregated South. And I'll get to that a little bit later on. Uh, my teachers, uh, the white teachers, primarily taught the curriculum and I was a good student. I wasn't problematic. I was good in sports. I was good in academics. So we didn't have a hard time. But by the time I completed my undergrad, which was at Bradley University in business management and uh, administration, I went back to the Wisconsin Conservatory of Music, where I became a jazz piano performance major. And there, for the first time, I had black teachers. I mean, all this time from kindergarten all the way through undergrad, the only black teachers I had were an occasional PE teacher. You know, that was it. So I had no role models, nothing or anything. And the black teachers that I had uh, at the conservatory were more than instructors. They were mentors. They were father figures. They took me under their wing. Tony King in particular was my my jazz piano uh, teacher. And uh, we would have a one hour 
uh, lesson, but I'd be in there for several hours because after the one hour lesson was over, he's teaching me and telling me about his 40 years on the road and the adventures that he's having. Matty Ellis uh, was one of the professors there who had played with different uh, folks like Stanley Turrentine and so forth, brought me into a combo and got me some real life experience. So they weren't just teaching the curriculum. They were ones that saw their role as as mentors, someone that can ease you into the, the profession and, and, and teach you the ropes. They had the connections. They had the phone numbers of people in New York. You know, I can connect you with Kenny Barron, these kind of things. So that was important for me. And then uh, later on when my wife and I uh, were pastoring in, in Iowa, we went to uh, United Theological Seminary and did a degree in a doctoral degree in Afrocentric pastoring and preaching with uh, Jawanza Kunjufu and Dr. Jeremiah Wright. So those again were were heavyweights that were uh, seeing their role as not just educators, but they were pouring into us from their life experience. They would give you entree into various places. They would get you connections. They were mentors in the truest sense of the word. And then from there, uh, you know, my wife and I both had missionary calls on our life that we knew were there from seminary. And God sent us to Iowa, of all places, right out of seminary, where <laughs> needless to say, it was an educational experience being in cross-cultural ministry, but it was training that gave us a preview of what it's like to do intercultural ministry because we had to go in, learn what the opinion leaders were, uh, what the later land was, who who uh, the folks were, what they were thinking about, what their issues were. And that was preparation for us going to Ghana, West Africa, because it's a very different culture. And you you don't realize just how much you have been influenced by the national American culture until you leave the country. So, you know, we were in the Afrocentric program and we were divesting ourselves of America and we were ready to go back to the homeland. And we got there and we ran into a collectivist society that was very different and very foreign from for us. Uh, for example, we had some friends that... Uh, uh, we had connected with it, became our family that actually uh, their, the father and the family named us. And, and we came back and adopted the, these Ghanaian names and their son married and Kwame and Alice came and they were living in an apartment. You know, we had rented two apartments in Kumasi and they were there. And one day Alice came over to borrow our blender, you know, because this one, this was me and Sophia's blender. And she said, no, this is our blender because you're part of the community now, you see. Yeah, yeah, and so, yeah. you know, that gives you a double take. So so we were able to, in that experience, get a chance to really see what it's like uh, in another culture uh, because, it, and, and it was there that we really realized, I was teaching a class there and I and I asked the question, uh, how could how could you participate in the slave trade? How the slave trade? How could you sell your own people? You know, into slavery. They said those weren't our people. Hmm. You know, those were our enemies, and that's where tribalism came into my mm -hmm. mind. These were different black ethnic groups. So they're selling people from a different ethnic group. We became a people in the United States. We became the amalgamation of sixteen different various nations coming here and mashed together, becoming 
black people. So we are the culmination of many, many African ethnic groups, but there the ethnic groups are still intact. And so that was a, a, a big aha for me. And I also saw, you know, there's good, good and bad in all, all cultures. There are angels and demons in every culture. So that helped me to also see that human nature, you know, has its strengths and its weaknesses and, and, and just being blindly loyal to a culture because you're part of that culture is not enough. There has to be some critical analysis. From there, we came back to the United States, served in some denominational uh, offices in New York, uh, New Jersey, and then in Nashville for 10 years. And for the past 11 years, I have been serving as an assistant, or excuse me, associate professor uh, at Wesley Seminary, which is located in uh, Indiana, but I currently live in a retirement community in Grand Rapids, Michigan. So we have moved 18 times. We've had been around the world and back, and I'm here now talking with you. <laughs> wow. Well, thank you so much for sharing your story with me. This is why, you know, I could have asked for a, a biography and just read it in your bio and share. But that context, that richness of your journey is what I want our listeners to hear. And what I want to learn from today as well, because 18 moves, you felt a missionary's call. You, you've done the work that you feel like God has called you to. You're still running faithfully for the Lord. Um, and you, you, you've been in different cultures. You can speak to those experiences, as well as how the gospel still applies in all those different areas. So I'm really excited about having you on the show today, really excited about talking to you. So let's kind of jump in um, and talk a little bit about this book, Building a City on a Hill. Um, I know that I know I reached out to you about this, and I know that you and Dr. Lattimore co-authored this book. You primarily focus on the uh, the student and adult curriculum, uh, but I want to use that as a jumping off point today because it details ten African American communities to, from from <clears throat> post slavery to around uh, World War II. And why was it so important for you to participate in a project like this? Well, this was uh, I, I was on a multi year kind of contract with Urban Ministries, and this project actually is the brainchild of Jeff Wright and the design team there, and Dr. Lattimore and myself were were uh, asked in to provide the content. So, unfortunately, I never got a chance to meet Dr. Uh, Lattimore, and we didn't collaborate. I had my writing assignment; he had his. So, this was actually the first time that I read his portion of the book doing the background on the the 10 different stories so it was actually a good i'm glad you asked me <laughs> to do this because this was enlightening for me as well but i think for me the important aspect of participating in these kinds of projects is is really something that might go back to something that i got in ghana there's a word in ghana called sankofa Three words that are mashed together becomes a compound word. Sankofa, meaning go back and fetch it. And the proverb has an image. There's an adinkra symbol of a bird that has its neck turned backwards with an egg. And the story goes that this bird uh, laid an egg and went off and left it behind. And the rest of the animals said, you, you, you left something important behind you. You need to go back and fetch it. So the concept of Sankofa is that of going back into history and fetching those aspects of history that are most important for us to, to chew on, to reflect on, to adopt and embrace because they become the strength that moves us forward. Along with that is the, the idea of 
uh, a step back exercise that was uh, something that I was alerted to by Dr. Anthony Mensa, who is himself or was he's late the late Dr. Mensa was a professor at the University of uh, Wisconsin in Milwaukee, and that exercise really had you to step back into your male ancestor one generation at a time. And as you go back through those generations, you imagine what it was like living in that generation at your current age and the, the different adversities that they had to face and so forth. And so from that experience, along with the Sankofa uh, understanding, it's that notion of going back and learning from history so that it enables you to move through the present more informed. And it's kind of like the biblical understanding of the, the Jews who had just crossed over the Jordan and had these 12 stones. What do these stones mean? Um, I think that's why, again, these conversations are so important because we need an honest view of history um, and Dr. Lattimore says something good. He says this in the book. He says, we need these conversations because the black experience in America is one of the least discussed aspects of American life and history. In the African-American experience, the path from slavery to freedom included psychological and legal oppression. And it's, sometimes we do romanticize history and culture because a lot of time it isn't appreciated or spoken about. And I can speak about my journey is similar uh, I grew up in a in Birmingham, Alabama. I went to a majority white school system because my mother thought it would provide better opportunities for us. Um, she moved us out of the community that she grew up in, but we stayed in the black church. Well, for me, that also created that uh, I, I'm, I'm getting who I am on Sundays, but throughout the rest of the week, I'm in an environment that's really hostile towards my blackness, towards my experience, towards my history. And so it was important for me to go on a journey later in life to really better understand my history. Because at some points I did romanticize it and it took a honest reading of history, uh, honestly listening to those voices. And I love what you talked about, going back, fetching it, putting ourselves in the mindset of those who came before us and what it must have been like for them to be very honest about the beauty and the brokenness of the times they grew up in. And so when you were, when you were going through this process, um, was were there any lessons that you learned that you just didn't know um, that really stuck out to you? Well, there there were many. Uh, first of all, I I was unaware of the uh, origin stories of about eight of these uh, different cities, other other than Tulsa and you know the the the, the Black Wall Street and and, and the Greenwood uh, uh, Village area and and uh, Tuskegee because of of uh, Booker T. Washington, those were the only cities that I had any kind of cognizance of. And so it was important for me to see uh, a lot of the, the unwritten history uh, for black people is what happened after slavery. So, you know, you've been right. living on a plantation all this time and all of a sudden we free. Oh, not, not, but now what? Uh, right. What's what skills do we have? How do we organize? We've been left out of the, the political realm. We we haven't been able to uh, be educated as as broadly and widely. Uh, we haven't been part of the business community. We haven't had uh, governance and all these kind of things. We've been observing it, you know, as outsiders. And you learn from that, and you overhear things. But for the first time, you have an opportunity 
to uh, organize yourself and do something in the midst of a still hostile environment. And so it was intriguing for me to see the resiliency and the perseverance and the fortitude of our ancestors and the kind of adversity that they overcame uh, as they were doing this. Well, you know, one of the stories was just talking about the Freedom Village where the, the slaves were escaping and going to the, the, uh, a union camp, you know, where they're going to, I'm going to be in a fort here and they're going to uh, protect me. I'm not out of slavery because they haven't been uh, manumented yet. They haven't received emancipation, but it's better than the, the the slave plantation that I was on. And so even that kind of thing of, of, of doing anything to escape the, the harsh realities of enslavement, even if it's a, just a different version of it, uh, was intriguing to me. And again, it just shows the resiliency of, of people and how they will overcome things. And, and you know, it, it, it came to the place, uh, I remember reading in there that, of course, they created some tent camps and so forth, and they became so squalid and so so uh, disease-ridden that 25 people a week were dying. So it just shows you the desperation of people that are trying to escape the throes of, of, uh, of slavery. So learning learning about those origin stories was important for me and it it helped me to see also that there were common themes that were rehearsed and repeated throughout many of the these origin stories wow yeah um i remember going on that journey myself a number of years ago really wanting to better understand the time period like post slavery and reconstruction to the civil rights movement, because a lot of times you're right, like people know, okay, civil rights, but they don't know what exactly happened in that time period. And I remember reading a book that talked about the re-enslavement of Black America through um, convict leasing and other and, and the Jim Crow laws and how they came into existence. Um, but then hearing, you know, if you only hear that, you can forget that Black people in America have always tried to carve out a land for themselves, a land of opportunity, places where they could thrive. And they did that with varying levels of success, which is what I enjoyed reading about the book. Everything wasn't perfect, right? There was still conflict. There was there was great things that took place, but there were also uh, things that took place that led to the downfall or were detrimental for that community. As we look today in our society, like what is it going back and using that con concept of, of going back and fetching it, what is it that we can pull from the past to apply today as black people in America? Well, there, there's a number of things. That, let me just rehearse some of the common themes that you see over and over in, in the book from these origin stories. First of all, you see the role of the black church as a pillar in society. It was an institution where often the, the black preacher was the most educated person. And he was also, it was mainly he at that time, uh, was primarily uh, one that could advocate for uh, the community, uh, the church and the black community out in society. Church leaders and black clergy were often ones that were involved with some aspect of community building uh, within the black community. And, and, and they were also a moral, ethical force. Uh, sometimes, you know, between them and, and working with, one of, one of the instances was uh, a group of folks were working with the local chamber of commerce and working with the police department to say, we need to clean up this club over here that's doing some stuff that we don't want in the community. So 
the the ethical, moral, character-building aspect of the black church uh, is something that I think needs to be retrieved. And this is something that happens throughout Christianity, regardless of the cultural group, is that sometimes church uh, culture devolves into an emphasis on uh, institutional maintenance. You know, we, we are here the, the pastor is looking at the flock and, and the, the constant rhetoric is more, how can we get the money here to keep the lights on, to keep the pews comfortable and cushy and, 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 and uh, uh, those sorts of things, rather than how are we building people? How are we forming the next generation of leaders? How are we engaging the external community to fight for the rights of people? How are we uh, doing economic uplift and empowerment? What are we doing in, as far as uh, developing entrepreneurship and mentoring and those sorts of things? So I think there's a great opportunity for the church to uh, collectively uh, reevaluate its role. Now, we, we are not a monolithic people in, from the time that black churches were forced to become an institution because we were excluded from white churches. There were choices that were made along a continuum. Some churches were more assimilationist. You know, we want to just uh, make sure that we're doing things according to the way that things ought to operate as far as uh, an institution and Christian piety. And we don't want to rock the boat. Others were more civic minded and community building minded and were out doing things. Because, again, a, 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 an honest critique of our history uh, helps us, re reminds us that Dr. Martin Luther King was not embraced by everybody in the, in the Black Baptist Church. And that's why he, they had to form another convention. So, so we, we have this wide spectrum of positions and, and understandings of how to engage life. Uh, the, the fancy word that I use in, in, in class is socialization. We are socialized, learning how to function in society, given a set of beliefs and behaviors. And we, those behaviors and beliefs are either enforced or they are punished. And so depending on the church culture, what values are, are, are instilled and valued and promoted and rewarded and which ones are punished. So we, we have to examine that. There, there are some church cultures that have the uh, pie in the sky by and by, as long as I get to heaven, I'm okay. Salvation is, is my only reward. That's my only goal. And then there are others that are saying, but we are supposed to be building the kingdom on earth. And if we are going to be making this peaceable kingdom, then there are things that we need to do to make peace on this earth. You know, we've, we've got another national event going on right now in Memphis where, again, we're seeing the redundancy of police overreach and abuse. And it's 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 needs to be looked at critically because I have argued for years that it is not a black white thing. It is a blue culture thing where blue culture has been allowed to uh, to do the kinds of things that it's been doing wrongfully with impunity. No punishment, you know, you've got qualified immunity and all these various things that protect the, the, uh, the, the folks in this particular culture. And once again, we have a national event that is pushing us to the forefront where churches can play a role in this and uh, in, in helping to articulate both within the church and in the external community what is what is the way forward? What is the ethical way forward? What can we do and, and keep the pressure on? So the role of churches is important. The role of 
of fraternal and, and civic organizations were also fundamental in the organization of these various uh, communities. So you see fraternal groups and, and other groups that were uh, doing benevolence. And so we, we have that same thing today. We have organizations. And if the focus uh, continues to be on benevolence and how can I help the larger collective community, what can I do to, to do some, some uplift, to in increase the, uh, the capacity of the next generation to flourish? That's important. Land ownership. Mm, okay. Land ownership was huge, uh, and, and we're seeing the demise of land ownership, uh, where we need people that are uh, in real estate and are thinking in terms of land development strategically. You know, this is a place where if you're trying to encourage some black uh, youth to move forward in some professions, we need people that are city planners. We need people that are thinking in terms of how are we going to use this terrain that, that is before us and use it in responsible ways because that was another place where these black towns, once they did get up and running, the city planners would come and, and, and put a highway through it or some kind of urban renewal and development which would demolish these, these uh, cities and, 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 and disrupt the unity. So that was important. Black determinism, you know, we're, we, we need to be people that determine that we're not waiting for a handout. We're not waiting for somebody else to give us something. Uh, we do need to advocate for rights. I still believe there's some role of, for, for reparations, but that's, and that's one, one area of advocacy. But the other is, in the meantime, while the slow churning wheels of government are turning, we need to do some things for ourselves. And part of that is striving for excellence. I grew up in a generation where it was drilled in my head that you had to be 110%. You know, you, you, you had to be better than your white uh, counterpart. You had to work twice as hard. And uh, another way of saying it is whatever your profession is, whatever your trade is, whatever you are pursuing in life, you need to make sure you have technical competency. That means you are excellent at whatever you put your hand to. Then no one can deride you. Then no one can, can, can say you're just slacking and you're not worth the time of day. If we prove ourselves with excellence, that's one aspect. Then the other aspect is, particularly with leadership, is uh, sometimes leadership gets stagnant. And there's a, there's a great need for developing adaptive leaders. So you've got the technical skills. You learn how to do something, but time changes. Right now, we're in the midst of, of a liminal state because of the COVID pandemic. The church culture has been changed forever. You've got face-to-face -face members and you've got virtual members. So now the pastor of a church has to learn how to navigate those two spaces, physical and digital space. That means that the pastor and the, and the congregation have to adapt. And so we need leaders that are constantly adapting their skill sets, constantly monitoring the context in which we live to see what the societal changes are and how we might be able to respond to that. And then the last thing I'll just, just say is yes, just sir. Uh, Go ahead. Uh, uh, intercultural collaboration and partnership. In several of the instances of the origin stories, we saw the importance of blacks and whites working together. 
In some cases, you know, there was one case where a, a woman adopted a black child because the, the black father wasn't wasn't providing the care that was necessary. Another where there were land there was land that was involved that it, that was negotiated between black and white people. And so we also cannot uh, fall prey to the notion that we can just do this by ourselves. We we are still in the United States of America, and we need partners, willing partners. Uh, one of the things that Dr. Jeremiah Wright used to say to us in, in class is, uh, everybody your color is not your kind, and everybody your kind is not your color. So we need to find willing partners who uh, are willing to work collaboratively, will work in solidarity with us on projects where we are doing a mutual obligation kind of work. And so that's that's uh, an important thing. So these are just some of the themes that you see and you can glean from reading these origin stories. And if we will look at these in the church, rehearse them, and really have serious uh, conversations about what we can do. Now, every church can't do it. A small church has a different agenda. The large mega churches have a greater responsibility for doing things in the public because they have that platform. You know, you brought up the uh, Tyree Nichols uh, murder in in Memphis, and I recently saw a um, a report from the Pew Research Center that asked the question to Black people. It said, um, "What percentage or what what institutions do you think have done the most to help Black people in most re in, in recent years?" And it was interesting. The results said thirty nine percent said Black Lives Matter, and there was that wasn't a distinction between the organization or the movement, the NAACP, 17%, someone else, 14%. And then at 13%, it said black churches or other religious organizations. And you spoke specifically about the black church. And, and it's interesting, you brought up Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And only what, 10 to 15% of black churches were really involved in the civil rights movement. We, you're right, we forget that. Um, so, so helping in what ways, you kind of hit on this, but I want to dive a little deeper into it. In, in what ways can the black church in moments like this continue with all those things you listed out to push, like to, to actually gain more trust in the community, to be seen as a help in the community? And do you think, you know, would you agree with that 13% or would you say people may not fully understand all the black church is doing? Well, there, there, there's probably a, a bit of truth in, in both of those aspects. There, there may be more influence that people are unaware of that the black church is asserting in, in, the, in the local uh, communities and national scene. But I think it goes back to collaboration for me. Uh, when I was in uh, seminary, we, we had seven graduate schools, and they put us in a class called cross-pollination. So we had students from business, law, dental, education, medical, the seminary, and I can't remember what the other one was. And they gave us a case study, and they had all of us look at the case study and chime in on how to give the best care to this particular individual. The case was a, a competitive diver had dived into the water, struck a rock, and became a paraplegic. I'm looking through the lens of the seminary and a seminarian's eyes, and I'm thinking about his spiritual care and what, 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 how we need to pray for him and care for him spiritually. Someone from the, the School of Dentistry said he can't brush his teeth. See, I wouldn't have thought of that. 
So if if black clergy and the black church collective enters into cross-pollination like conversations with various entities in society, civic organizations, we we need to be at the the uh, city hall meeting. Somebody from the church needs to be there. Somebody needs to be in the court system. Somebody needs to be, you name it. We need to be in these various places so we have eyes and ears on the ground so we can see and assess what the issues are and then be visible so that we have an opportunity to speak into those issues. So I think one of the things that has hurt the black church is where it used to be not only a spiritual but also a social center be in segregated society. Uh, Dr. Jawanza Kanjufu said, uh, uh, when did we get what we wanted and lost what we had? And so when, when we became integrated, we lost the cohesion that came from forced segregation where you had garbage collectors and doctors living on the same block. We're now interacting with each other. We're, we're rubbing shoulders. We're influencing others. Uh, uh, Dr. Otis Moss Jr., not the third, but his, his, the, the elder statesman was speaking once in Indianapolis and I was there and he said, you know, we, we had our psyches intact because in that segregated context that where he was, I'm walking past a black barbershop and a, and a black insurance company and a black bank and I'm seeing that black people are doing these various things. So my self-image is not harmed what, by what the, the larger society is say, saying because there's a counter to that. There's a rebuttal to that. And so I think as black churches start thinking about how to uh, rebut some of the negativity that uh, people are hearing, especially in this age of, of social media where uh, it, you know anything can get just intrude through someone's device, the church has to have a rebuttal. I was sitting once in a barbershop when I had hair <laughs> in New Jersey. And some something came on the TV and uh, it was church related. And I asked a brother that was sitting next to me, I said, what, what do you think about that? What do you think about the black church? He said, what, what do you think uh, the black church could do? He said, man, uh, the black church is the biggest fashion show on, on, on earth. We need to start opening up some, some dry cleaners and we need to teach people how to drive. These people don't know how to drive. So he was all already going to economic empowerment, finding the, the seeing what the needs are and addressing them. And that's another theme that you see in these, these 10 stories that often the adversity or a need was identified and then something, a response was made. We can't bury each other. We're, we got burial societies. We're not, they're not insuring us. We got insurance companies. They won't let us bank. We created our banking. They won't educate us. We, we made our own schools. So as we look at society and begin to see where are we excluded still or where are we getting an anemic uh uh, response or, or exposure to something, this is a place where we should be doing the gap analysis and saying, how can the, the black church step into this gap? How can we help folks? And more than that, if we are instilling within our congregants the notion that everybody can be a mentor, each one teach one, each one reach one, then wherever you are, if you see your role as identifying people with promise, and finding ways to pour into them to help them. And, and again, now I do this as a professor. 
And, and it doesn't rec uh, matter what the color of the skin of the person is. But if I particularly see a black person, I'm really excited. In fact, there's a student of mine that I uh, had in a first year course, introductory course, and I noticed that she was an excellent writer and communicator. She's, she's an immigrant from Cote d'Ivoire, been here. Her English is impeccable. And she's a go-getter, uh, was in the corporate world. And I said, you know, you really need to think seriously about writing as part of your ministry platform. And she took my advice, and now she's got her first published book. So these are the kinds of things where whatever platform and whatever arena or sphere of influence that God has given you, if you look at that and say, I can be a mentor, I, I can give back to the community, I can pour into somebody else, that's, that's very important. There's, there's like four questions that I ran into in a book called The Call to Your Soul by Marjorie Zoid Bankson. She said, at various parts of our life, we ask these questions. Who am I? You know, when you leave home, you know, you're out of the influence of the home environment, so you're figuring out who you are. What is my work? You know, what am I supposed to be doing? What's my gift? What special things, unique things have, has God given us? And then at the last portion, the last quarter of your life, which is where I am now, what is your legacy? And so if we can help instill within people, particularly those that are in their 60s and so forth, what, what legacy can you pass on to someone? What have you learned in life? The Jews have something called an ethical will where they don't, they're not passing on money, but they're passing on life experience. They write it down and they send it to, to their, their children and grandchildren so they can learn from their, their experiences. And so these are important things. If we can put legacy language in our rhetoric, uh, how can you help someone else down the road? Because we wouldn't have trees if somebody 40 years ago didn't plant some seeds. You know, so even though we may not see the results in our lifetime, I might not see the results of some of the seeds that I plant. But if my joy is in instilling and empowering others and encouraging others, then I am hopeful because I am investing in the future. Wow. Um, and you answered my last question, which was going to be about, you spoke about leadership development, like the, the need for these new leaders. And you just shared a roadmap for how uh, the church and people currently in leadership can go about forming those leaders coming up behind them. And um, yeah, that was that was awesome. Thank you for sharing that wisdom with us because I often look at it, you spoke about entrepreneurship, I often look at it as that we need builders and we need reformers, right? Like we have institutions, we have churches, um, schools, government, uh, families that that need people that say, hey, I'm going to go and I'm, go I'm going to work inside these existing institutions to see change and transformation, but they can't do it alone, right? They need mentorship. They need to know they're not alone. They need that guidance. They need people helping to direct them. They need people to encourage them when it gets hard. They need to learn those lessons that you got to stay in it. It gets tough, but you have a legacy that you can live into based off those who've gone before you. But we need those reformers and we need those builders. We need those who see themselves as going out, planting churches, starting businesses, leading, starting organizations to serve their community. Um, because I would agree. I think that I think that we need a clear vision forward. And um, and I appreciate you saying that we can't do that alone. So um, two things. Last thing. Well, one thing is um, where can our audience follow your work? to get more acquainted with you, if they want to listen to you, if they want to, they want to read more of your work, where can they go? 
Well, I've got some, some old books. I haven't written uh, anything published in a while, some, some devotional books. One is a men's devotional called 40 Days in the Wilderness. I have a Lenten study that's out years ago. It was called In Plain View of the Cross. And then there was a, a Sunday school curriculum. Uh, it was part of a Jesus series where it was the resurrected Jesus. So those are, those are the publications. I'm not really currently doing any podcasts or any blogs at this time. I've kind of full-time got my head into uh, being an educator and, and working toward retirement. My wife and I uh, also are uh, entrepreneurs in that we have a business. We are fiber artists. We are weavers and spinners. Now, when we were in Ghana, there's a place called Bonwiri where they make the kente cloth. And I wish we had uh, had the interest in weaving and spinning then, but we came back and uh, fell in love with it. And so we have a, a business called Sankofa and Silk. Uh, that's on Etsy, and so you can see some of our our artistic work there. But uh, uh, that's that's really where I am right now. I'm kind of out of the social media piece right now. I'm uh, really thinking in terms of just pouring myself into my students. And upon graduation, I hope to to move into another artistic realm and do some music composition and things like that. That's fantastic. Uh, it said Sankofa and Silk, right? Yes, Sankofa, right, so, the letter N, and then Silk on okay. Etsy. All right, y'all go check that out on Etsy. Buy something, buy something handmade, handcrafted. Support black businesses. We're all for it. Um, and then a uh, last thing is, before I let you go, we have this thing on my Black Book Journal called Reading Brings Me Joy. And so what have you read recently that has brought you joy? Hmm. Wow, I'm trying to think of. Uh, right now, I am uh, reading some some books. I'm I'm moving into proclamation, and I'm reading some some books on on preaching. Uh, and some of the names that are are escaping me right now. I'm reading some some classics by by different folks like Eugene Lowry, uh, and. Uh, Cleophas Larue. I'm I'm remembering the I've I've read too many books at the same time. I'm reading these <laughs> authors. I'm remembering the authors and not remembering the titles of their of their books. Uh but those right now, because again that's a different area of my focus, I'm I'm looking at those kinds of things and, and reading those sorts of things. And I'm also uh looking at oh actually I'll tell you a book that, that is giving me joy. In fact, I, I, I borrowed it from the library and I, I purchased it because I was so impressed. It's a book of poetry by Amanda Gorman. Mm. Uh, Call Us What We Carry. Mm. I highly recommend this. This is a young sister who is a poet laureate and we need to listen to the people in the arts, especially the poets. She has a line in there where she talks about uh, the po the poet basically... Uh, presses you back into history, which is, is, is an, I'm paraphrasing, but it's the it's the notion that the the poet makes you remember history where we would want to forget it. And the way that she uh, has a, has the turns of phrases and the way that she uses words are provocative and thought provoking. Wow! Thank you so much for sharing that. Again, Dr. Kenna, it has been a privilege and a pleasure to have you on my Black Book Journal. Thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you for having me. Bless you. Thank you.